recognize that pathway that you just went through and not penalize a school for your success. Is it really important for an institution to have these small programs? Is it better to build out some programs that might have more have broader demand? This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. In this episode of In the Know, Deborah Humphreys, Vice President of Strategic Engagement from the Lumina Foundation, discusses accreditation and quality assurance with the ACCT staff. This was a great conversation that covered a lot of information relevant to trustees today and in the future. We are very interested at Lumina Foundation in increasing opportunities for high quality learning beyond high school. Uh, and we know that things have changed dramatically in terms of who goes to college, how they go to college, and what both individuals and the society really need to get from the credentials that they're achieving. And so we have focused quite a bit of um, energy and our resources on this question of quality. Uh, and, and accreditation is part of that. Uh, so really happy to be here in this conversation. Uh, Hi, uh, this is Ji Hang Lee. I'm the Vice President for Public Policy and External Relations with ACCT. Colleen Allen, Director of Educational Services with ACCT. Well, everybody, um, so Deborah and I talked a little while ago, as I mentioned, about accreditation, but I'm interested in um, something that Deborah actually just said before we started recording uh, about expanding the conversation beyond just accreditation. So would you like to share your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, your members probably know that um, accreditation's been around for quite a long time and is one of the ways in which um, our system um, of higher education holds itself accountable for quality. Uh, and it, over time, has become uh, a vehicle through which the federal government um, uh, sort of regulates who gets access to aid. But um, I would say that the interest people have in issues of quality uh, are going to actually require change and attention by way more than just accrediting agencies who form a kind of important touchstone for this. But ultimately, um, lots of other players have roles to play. Uh, federal policymakers have other kinds of regulations that go beyond accreditation. There's a lot of discussion in this town in Washington about changes to what the federal government might um, regulate higher education uh, on. Uh, but I also think that um, states have a role to play, uh, and especially in public systems, you know, public system agencies have a role to play in quality um, and assuring quality and defining quality. And ultimately, institutions themselves and programs themselves, um, I think, are taking more seriously their responsibility to define what the outcomes of programs really need to be and then um, be more transparent about how uh, their programs are designed and are actually producing the outcomes that they say they should. Um, so accreditation is a part of it. And accreditation has actually, over the years, I think, um, not been given enough credit to be honest, for being a force to uh, encourage, some institutions might say force, mm -hmm. um, an attention to outcomes and attention to um, student uh, results and student achievement in a way that likely would not have um, been as robust. 
if they had not done that. Now that said, there are other things that haven't changed very much um, in the accrediting world and that um, people feel need to change. Um, given the, the variety of, of both credentials and uh, student pathways to those credentials. Um, as you described uh, the, the topic of quality assurance, and you also mentioned like the programmatic outcomes, mm -hmm. and obviously there are programmatic accreditors, and <clears throat> our report actually outlines uh, you know, some of our subset of our institutions and how many programmatic accreditors they have. Um, one thing that you uh, that would be of interest to our membership is that the vast majority of our institutions are public institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, they are locally based, state based, uh, and uh, for the most part locally funded. And uh, for the except for a few of us, uh, a few of them are state funded. Uh, and I'm wondering what the role of the state is as part of this broader conversation, because obviously from locally governed entities. Right. Um, they would prefer to be locally governed by right. the, you know, as we can get as down to the local level yeah. or the state level, as opposed to be federally dictated towards. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think there's a lot of sensitivity to um, the locus of control on particular aspects of quality, um, and rightly so. But there's a lot of conversation about, um, given the amount of resources that, say, the federal government is pouring into the system through aid to directly to students, um, and at the state level, depends on the state um, resources as well, that being sort of um, appropriate stewards of that money and responsible stewards of that money, they, they rightly are asking questions. I think that the role of the state is a really important one to put on the table because in a regulatory sense, states have to authorize institutions to, to operate in their states um, before they then would be recognized by the federal government um, to allow students to use federal aid. However, the states um, vary tremendously in, in how robustly that process works. In some instances, if you're an institution that's been around for a while, you were authorized and then you're forever more authorized, and, and that's it. Um, in other places, uh, there's very little attention whatsoever to that responsibility. I think that my own view um, is that states could be playing more of a role, not in a strictly regulatory sense, but in um, a sort of public dialogue kind of sense, in um, shining a spotlight on the institutions and what they're doing and the results that they are producing, um, actually gathering useful information from institutions about student outcomes that would enable the states to, or the state agencies, to paint a picture of what the public impact is of the, ex the expense that people are, are um, are, are playing. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, one of the reasons I think everyone is talking about quality, there's probably a couple reasons, but one is that the public increasingly is skeptical about um, not just the quality, but really the return on investment of resources, their own resources. Um, I mean, the, the truth is over the past decade or more, we've actually shifted much more of the burden of paying for college from the state, or from the public coffers, federal, state, onto students um, and their families. And um, 
that has and the stakes have gotten higher and higher in terms of having a high quality credential in order to have any shot at a middle class lifestyle and upward mobility and economic opportunity so the stakes are really high um, and because of that I think there's a lot more questioning um, especially coming out of the recession um, for a long time um, it was pretty trusting that people were, were trusting that institutions that institutions had students interests at heart and that if you um, went to a college that you got to the finish line most of them did I think the public is actually somewhat surprised when they hear how few students actually do get to the finish line um, especially in a you know a shorter length of time um, but you know in earlier eras there wasn't as much student loan debt um, and the stakes weren't quite as high and so the attention towards well wait a minute are these degrees really producing what we want them to produce um, and for most people that means uh, employability capacity and um, maybe even real attention to that pathway onto um, better jobs. And so once that heightened attention emerges, I think it just raises the, the bar for everyone in the quality assurance system from the program to the institution to the system to the state to the feds to figure out what their role is. Um, and the accreditors are right in the middle of all of that. They're kind of at this nexus point and um, sort of smart leaders, smart boards and, and uh, academic leaders, I think actually use accreditation, whether programmatic or regional or both, um, as the vehicle to advance a, a more robust quality agenda on their own campuses. That should be going on and, and is going on, whether the accreditor was there or not, but the accreditation becomes a sort of tool to use to say, well, you know, every, every 10 years or every seven years, we have to go through this process in order to get aid. Let's use that process to actually, on an ongoing basis, make sure that we're making good on the promises we're, we have for students. Um, my own view is unless we do that, unless we get a, actually a lot more transparent about it, the public will continue to ask questions. Um, because in some cases, um, students, you know, more students um, who go to college end up with debt and not a degree <laughs> than is healthy. And um, that makes it very difficult um, for us to say, well, you know, what we're doing is good. What we are doing is good. We're producing really good, um, many institutions are producing really good credentials. Um, but as long as there are large numbers of students who are borrowing a lot um, to go to college, and maybe not getting the outcomes that they need. Um, th we're going to have this scrutiny. And so my own view is we could, we could all get a whole lot more transparent about the outcomes. Um, and I think that people are sometimes nervous about that, um, especially community colleges, because they serve such a diverse population, and they serve a population that requires a lot of support. And there are many reasons why um, students who require a lot of support might not get to the finish line as quickly. Um, but the return on investment for those students is enormous and the stakes are super high. So I feel like a lot more transparency around all of this is key to all the systems, um, state, federal. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we are associated, ACCT has been involved in 
is <clears throat> the voluntary framework for accountability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we're, you know, community colleges for the most part are judged upon a three-year graduation rate mm -hmm. uh, that presupposes first time, full time. Right. And <clears throat> the way our students, you know, go through education can be three-quarter time, you know, full time, uh, one semester, uh, you know, work the following semester, come back half time. Uh, and the, the way that we measure graduation really d doesn't understand how the enrollment process of our students um, is currently in place. Yep. And so one of the things that VFA does is that it does follow students for a six-year period of time so yep. that it, it does measure students who are part-time students. The other thing that, uh, you know, the other thing about our institutions, which is kind of gets lost in the weeds uh, in this broader contextual conversation about the role we have is that we do CTE, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we do adult basic education, yeah. um, we do remedial education, uh, and VFA is able to help institutions kind of measure those measurements so that we can show that these are other areas that were our students were helping our students uh, because I do think sometimes Capitol Hill the administration they just see this graduation rate that's all they think about um, when you meet with congressional staffers for the most part many don't have an interconnection with a community college or a community college student um, they tend to go to more selective institutions. And so they just don't understand why a student would not go full time. Yeah. Uh, ask a question? And I'm asking this because mm -hmm. I don't know the answer, and maybe I should since I work here, but how in debt are the community college students in comparison to say a four? And I don't mean to be bashing four year students, because yeah. if less. the issue <laughs> is a return on investment <clears throat> and they are not that big of a drain. Yep. I mean, Absolutely. people keep saying, you know, I have two nephews who are 30 years old that have so much student debt, they can't afford to buy real estate. Yeah. I mean, one of the lawyers in our room here and another one of our staff people have talked about wanting to invest in real estate, which contributes to the county tax base, which contributes to, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I guess my question is, Community colleges seem like a good return on the investment absolutely. and I the recognition right. that they may not complete in two, maybe three, maybe six years because yep. of all the other things that, I, I mean, you, you've had that experience. Well, we were, um, <clears throat> Colleen and Justin here, he is our multimedia specialist, and I were talking this morning about um, commuter colleges versus uh, residential ones, universities, how perceptions may differ and why. And I have opinions about that, but I was a community college student, as was my sister. We're first generation. We were commuting from home because that's the way that you do it. Went to Nova, an excellent institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't take out loans when we were there, frankly, because the um, the overall amount of it just didn't seem to warrant taking, like going through that whole process. I'm sure I put some money on a credit card. And um, ultimately, I, I think it's an interesting question. All of this is, this comes down to, Deborah, when we were talking before I read an article that you wrote a couple of years ago and said uh, that 
reform to accreditation must be done in ways that honor the distinctive missions of individual institutions. And I would extend that to students as well. Yeah. So in my case, it took me five years to get my bachelor degree. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that, as we were discussing this morning, was because I was working. Yeah. And there's a perception that a delayed graduation time uh, is an encumbrance or that it's a it implies low performance or low dedication. And in my case, that was not the case. Um, I, you know, I put all the energy I could towards school and I actually, I did very well when I was in college academically, but I also had to work to support that effort. And so it took longer. And, um, and frankly, I'll just interject this too. I transferred to Nova mm -hmm. one course short of uh, getting my associate degree. The reason I did not get my associate degree at the time was because I didn't want to spend that extra money. It was for an orientation class I hadn't taken up front. And um, so it, it, from this student's perspective, it worked out very well for me. And I continued to progress in my education. Absolutely. There are a lot of students in these sorts of situations, and these standards certainly don't account for this larger picture. Absolutely. I, I think the story you just told is we, we have to tell more stories like that to um, policymakers, boards, leaders, because I would say there's two big things that the current system is not aligned with. The major one is who today's students are and how they go to college. Um, and it, it, all of the systems assume a particular kind of student that is the minority now. Um, depends on the study, but 60 or 70 percent of students are working while going to college. Now, some of them are working 10 hours a week. Some of them are working full-time. And a lot of community college students, obviously, um, are working full-time. Um, and, and so that, I would say, from Lumina's point of view, is one of the biggest um, priorities for us in terms of the policy conversation. How do we make the, how do we make the regulations, one, recognize that pathway that you just went through and not penalize a school for your success, um, even though, say, you never actually got a degree from Northern Virginia, right? So that's a question. Um, while not <laughs> enabling institutions that are not serving precisely those students very well, but are seeking them and are, um, and are actually um, causing students to go into a lot of debt not generally speaking community colleges, but some other institutions. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a major balancing act yeah. in terms of regulations, and, and that's why I think it's a, it's a pretty fraught and difficult conversation. So the, the big one is who today's students are. The other one is how the, the economy has changed and how work has changed, and, and that is a longer-term arc of change. Um, but it, I think it has real implications for how we define what the outcomes are, the learning outcomes are. Because from from my point of view, we always sort of start not from the, like you guys are a membership organization of institutions, and institu institutions are your unit of analysis. For us, we start from the student point of view and the potential student point of view. Um, and obviously they need quality institutions in order to get the credentials. But if you start from the point of view of the student, you, you can sort of address the question in a different sort of way. What, what is going to enable a system that protects that student from institutions that might not serve them well? What is a system that will help that student actually have information 
that will help them make smart choices. So that, you know, there are students who are not making the smart choices that you, it sounds like you did um, along the way. You worked, but you also went to college. You, you smartly moved from one to the other. You were able to make that happen. There are a lot of students who just don't, are not navigating the system that way because they don't know the difference. They don't necessarily know that community college students tend not to have very much student loan debt. Um, this is where the larger conversation and perception sometimes is more important than reality because the public sees headlines about large numbers of debt, and actually there are no large numbers of people who have defaulted. A lot of them are the ones who never got to the finish line, who attended institutions that um, encouraged them to take debt, perhaps more than they should have. Um, and so sorting that out, I think, actually could ben benefit tremendously the picture people have in their minds of community colleges and that return on investment. Um, but without real attention to what those outcomes are, um, or, or not being comfortable putting those outcomes on the table, I think, is something that um, is going to get in the way of painting that more accurate picture. I'm Christina Simons. I'm the Director of Educational Events here at ACCT. I'm here to tell you a little bit about our annual Leadership Congress coming up in October in the Big Apple, New York City. It's October 24th to the 27th. We're expecting over 1,400 community college trustees and presidents in attendance. This means it's a great networking and professional development opportunity for you. The early bird registration deadline is coming up soon, August 17th, so be sure to get registered or go to congress.acct.org for more information, and we hope to see you in New York. Colleen, uh, you mentioned a, a student loan borrowing in general. So for community college students, these are the students who actually borrow at community colleges, and community colleges have the lowest borrowing rates of anybody in yeah, yeah. of any sector of higher education. We're looking around average around $12,000. And if you look at our previous reports that we have done on student loans, you'll see that uh, the two-year, the community college sector has a very high default rate. Uh, we have the highest sector default rate. You know, obviously we have a small, minute group of students who are borrowing, mm -hmm. but the real issue is that a large number of our students who have small debt, we're talking about $5,000 yeah. or less, are actually the ones who are defaulting on their loans. And it's interesting in that, <clears throat> you know, we have this broader, philosophical conversation about students that accrue 30, 40, 50, $100,000 in debt, those are actually typically the individuals that have gone through higher education, have degrees, and are but realistic, are paying, are paying it down because they're in an income-based repayment plan. Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, I think one of the things that you hearken to is like, you know, we talked about return on investment and we also talked about like, you know, students who um, are borrowing. And I think one of the things that our sector should also acknowledge, broadly speaking, in support of our students is that students should also take a look at, you know, the economic cost of going slower in college. Yeah. Um, and that means students who are taking one course a semester, those are students that are only going half time. And we, as a sector, need to do better of confronting these issues with our students and say, this is what it looks like. This is your aid package at a full time rate. Yeah. 
So this is Pell and Student Loans, SEOG, Work Study, and say, this is our aid package. This gets you through the door by X period of time. If you go half time, this is what we can give you. But that also means that instead of graduating in two and a half, three years, you're looking at six years, five years. And to really try to help our students understand this uh, this conversation. Because the flip side of this borrowing conversation, and this occurs very explicitly in our sector, is that people, when they talk about student debt, Globally speaking, in USA Today, Washington Post, New York Times, that all filters down to our local uh, periodicals and you know mm-hmm, newspapers. Mm-hmm. Students then become adverse to borrowing, right. when in actuality, it might be in their interest. To it might be in their interest yeah. to go full time for that one semester yeah. and borrow, yeah, or go you know yeah. borrow yeah. full yeah. Like, full amount full for two semesters, semesters just to finish up in a time like, timelier time fashion. fashion. And I think and that, that is. That one thing that we've been trying to, um, as part of our reports, is also acknowledge that you know students who have higher debt are in income-based repayment plans, and but they also have degrees. Yep. Yeah, two things you said. One, when, one you when you mentioned about coming in the door and knowing if you this is your aid package. If you take three years to do it, if you take five years to do it, this is you know, and I know even like on a credit card statement. You know, even like when you have a minor balance, say $300, like if you make the minimum payment, it'll take you like 25 years to pay this off, (laughs) you know? And actually, it's really stunning when you see that. But um, there was something else you said, Jihang, that I was thinking about, though. Should there be different standards of accreditation for the community college sector, which I know would probably be... Well, in some regions, there are. There are oh. um, uh, in the in the Wasp region, the Western region. There's there's just there's a four year accreditor and a two year. <laughs> there's just different accreditors. Um, I mean, the answer that I would well, you could, go ahead. I just wanted to give a. Sh- uh, there is a piece of legislation, the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, and in the, in the House, the Prosper Act, actually has basically uh, a separate accreditation standard based upon mission. So, mm-hmm. like you know, they, I think, and uh, I would say that's more of a um what's a good word and jeopardy like the you know i think for uh, the this is one of the ivy leagues has been uh institutions has been a big proponent of like saying why do we have the same standards as my neighboring community college uh, so this would be, create a differentiated system based upon like you know i guess you know how at risk we should tease out here because this is a very important uh, issue i would say the current system um, is very and maybe in some cases too uh, mission um, sensitive so most accreditors do let institutions define their own outcomes based on mission and then they hold themselves to it, hold them to it. I think the thing that that is a, a debate um, right now in in Washington and other places is is that robust enough? It's certainly relevant to the conversation we just had, um, and especially if you add in what isn't really there right now, which is attention to graduation and default rates and so forth, and. It is a, it's a tricky um, calculus to figure out how to, on the one hand, 
account for the kinds of students that you educate in a typical community college, um, while not sort of uh, letting institutions, not necessarily yours, but institutions off the hook for serving those students well, or assuming that because you serve certain kinds of students, you should not be held to a particular standard. So I think it, it, the mission differentiation issue is really, um, it, it's, I don't think it's likely to go away at all. I think the thing that you were referencing in terms of the elite institutions is something we've done some research on or funded other people to do research on. It's not about mission sensitivity to the process, which I don't think is going to go anywhere. Actually, I don't think it's going to change um, in a major way. But it's actually about um, sort of a risk-based or differentiated um, necessary set of standards. And actually, accreditors can already do this. They already have the legislative authority to do this, and some of them do. Um, what the elites are asking for, though, is I think further than we would want the, want the system to go, which is basically, well, we're so obviously great, you know, why should we go through this process at all? Well, no, because, no, it's not self-evident that you're obviously great, and, um, you know, we should have a process that everyone goes through so that people can make judgments about where you're great, where you're not great, who goes, etc. But it raises an interesting question about... Um, so when you define quality, you know, we have a definition of quality that's all about the student and the credential they have and whether it's of high quality. But uh, an institution, right, needs to look at are we as an institution high quality and what does that mean? And a board or um, a state uh, legislator should be looking at, well, what does this region need? Um, what, what constitutes high quality? Um, in a system of community colleges or in a system of state institutions for, for our region. And that question, if you ask it that way, um, there are a lot of things you would put on the table. We have a regional economic development uh, model. We might need to actually invest more or to hold institutions accountable for things like, you know, do institutions, are institutions graduating people who are being employed in our region and staying in the region? Um, that could be a priority. Um, now, for some institutions, national institutions might say, well, that's not what we do, we're doing. That's, so that's an example of a, a, an appropriate attention to mission. But I think that, you know, we think nationally and, and from the point of view of the students who need certain things. And I think that I do worry that some institutions um, use the sort of, well, we're all different. Everything, you know, we all have our own missions, and that's the great thing about American higher education. It is a good thing about, about American higher education, but I think some people use that as an excuse to say, well, you know, because of that, there's no way that, that any system of publishing graduation rates or defaults rates is going to be useful. And what you're, the point you made earlier about the numbers of students who graduate with small amounts of debt but are in default, for those students, because they also typically come from families who do not have a lot of accumulated wealth, they don't have a lot of social capital, it's really serious for them to be in default on a small debt. Now, who's responsible for that? You know, it's a societal issue, right? We decided to fund more of higher education with debt. That was a consequential decision <laughs> about 30 years ago. This is, at the state, this is at the state and federal level. So Absolutely. it's, so, 
Um, you know, I, you mentioned something about like the regional and regional and local component to it. I do think as part of like the quality assurance conversation is to, is for our local institutions to work more broadly with like the regional entity workforce development agencies yeah, yeah. to um, fine tune, especially some of their certificate programs, some of their more uh, workforce associate degree programs that are geared towards expanding uh, work uh, opportunities for students. Um, you know, as part of our effort to look at, like, for example, gainful employment, which is regulation on our institutions and specifically our certificate programs, you see some of our programs that are so small. They have maybe a handful of like five students or less. And you're wondering, is it really important for an institution to have these small programs? Is it better to build out some programs that might have more have broader demand? And so these are things that I do think our institution should, and this is data that it's available to them, they should look at the data Absolutely. to help the inform. The data is getting much, much better on, on sort of forecasting, forecasting mm -hmm. employment and so forth. And I think you raised the other, I mentioned that for me the, the who are today's students being a major driver of reform and should be. The other one is the proliferation of credentials, um, which, and not all given by traditional institutions. Um, and right now, it's uh, it's kind of the Wild West. I mean, there are just so many credentials out there. People don't really know which ones are of high quality, which ones are valuable, which ones will help me uh, move to the next level. So the story that you told about your traje educational trajectory um, was an important one to your current success. And that is, you started at a community college, you, you could have gotten a degree, you chose not to, but you then built on that and were able to take what you had in one place and move it to the next. Now, we're not always super successful at that, but we have a model for that. Right now, we also have this proliferation of opportunities that people have to learn things, to be credentialed in various ways, but non-traditionally, right? They can get badges, and they can go to a boot camp, and they can, uh, they get training on the job. They get training uh, in the military. And we have a system that isn't built for that, and is certainly not built for what we really need, which is an integrated sort of ecosystem in which all of that learning, all of the valuable learning that really does position you for success can be counted and so that a student who has those experiences can find a path and an affordable path, right, into that next credential that's going to really serve them. I think the certificate comment is a, is a useful one to start with because I think your institutions, community colleges in particular, are often under a great deal of pressure, actually, to respond quickly to short-term economic development needs. And they may be very real. Um, but sometimes they don't last. And so for students, we have to be really careful. You talked about helping them see the cost-benefit analysis of full-time versus part-time. I also think we have to be really careful, and your boards are in a good position to do this, to think both short-term and long-term. Because in the in, if, if our goal is to enable individuals to really have that lasting economic opportunity and social mobility, 
we absolutely do not want a system that's giving them a short-term credential that gets them a job that goes away in a year or in two years or in even shorter period of time. Um, and so I think that's something that the system is not currently designed to grapple with at all. Yeah. Well, I would also I would even say that there is a sustainable uh, sustainability issue for our institutions. So I'll give you an example. When Boeing moved some of its operations from Washington State to South Carolina, they worked with Triton Technical College, which is outside of Charleston. Trident and the state of South Carolina was happy to work with Boeing because it would be a humongous plant. Of course. Okay. But if David Connors, you know, small business uh, that employs five widget makers and they just want training for five widget makers and they come to my our institution they're going to be like you need five people to be trained on this machine with some and how many more uh, individuals do you think you're going to employ afterwards like i mean we don't we just need five for right now we might come back in a couple of years that becomes an issue for our institution to try to be one responsive but also realize that there has to be some sustainable model to, you know, the startup costs of creating a program, Absolutely. of the training. And I think that is one of the areas that our colleges really kind of get in a conundrum about is mm -hmm. that they have so many external pressure from like the Chamber of Commerce's in their community, from small business owners, sure. uh, to our, you know, to our focus on our boards and our presidents and our vice presidents of workforce we need this we need this we need this and colleges have to kind of figure out if whether or not they can do it yes. Yes. Uh, so i think that's that's an interesting uh, yeah. uh, i mean i guess the way i would define it find it from a leadership point of view i mean if i were on a board or if i were thinking about these issues at that level um, you have to have this both being responsive, but also being responsible for short-term and long-term outcomes. And that's where, in some ways, um, public institutions, if they're really public, right, have, have that responsibility and can actually, if enabled by smart board members and smart legislators and so forth, assuming we have those, um, you, you can have a kind of longer-term plan while still trying to be responsive. Um, and that could be part of the definition of what a quality system is, right? A quality system should be serving students um, and fueling economic development that is not going to be fleeting, right? That's going to, and that you, you're going to be articulating and very clear with students about what it is you're selling them, if you will. Um, air quotes around the word selling, right? W what it is you're offering them and what the return on investment is going to be, both short-term and long-term. So I, <clears throat> I heard both of you say different things, but that for me conjured a similar type of feeling. And Deborah, one of the things that you sort of uh, broached that I hope we can talk to you about in greater depth is the... Um, the validity of, of the education itself. If mm -hmm. it's if it's a short-term solution, how does it become a long-term solution? Right. I know that you're aware of ideas that are gonna help that happen, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you were talking about um, the development of altern alternative credentialing, um, whether it's certificates or badges and yeah. other stackable credentials, different pathways, different 
Um, and then, Ji Yang, you're talking about the multifaceted um, aspects of the colleges and the different roles that they serve. And I guess be, maybe because I'm a visual thinker, it overwhelms me. Yeah, you know, in the time absolutely. that I've been here, oh you know, the cliche about having too many balls in the air, it's like there are all of these things all over the place. Absolutely. And it can be overwhelming to even think about. And as I'm reading through information about accreditation reform, there are some big questions that come up. Um, basic questions, though. So maybe um, maybe that can help to focus things. I think the long-term, looking at the long-term solution certainly should rein in some of that. Yeah. Uh, but questions that I have are, who decides what to reform in the first place? <laughs> when? When would that start? When would that move beyond conversation Absolutely. in a way that applies to a number of different institutions or system-wide? How can, when we talk about colleges being held accountable, what does that mean? Is that accreditation status being um, in limbo? Or is it something other than that? Right. And, and then how, you know, since I spoke from a student's perspective, although that was 20 years ago, I remember it, you know, very clearly, and I feel like certain things were not communicated to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and had they been, I think that could have informed my progress and my decisions. And I suspect that may not be better today <laughs> in many institutions. Right. And so how, how does all of this, you know, besides knowing you should go to an accredited institution, how can students become at least somewhat aware of the decisions that are going into this and why there may be more limited offerings or why they may be directed toward the thing that's not exactly what they have in mind? All of these sorts of things, how, how does it get reined in? Yeah. Well, well, can you sort of, sure. uh, David, yeah. I, I think you I, I think said you something, something interesting to me. It said, um, you said, uh, you know, you're supposed to go to an accredited institution. I would beg to argue that, globally speaking, if we did a poll of America and we talked about uh, uh, you know, what's the difference between a college versus an accredited college, mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't understand the difference. And you know, we have, you know, we, you know there, was, there was a number of news articles about you know, 10 years ago where we had students who were in going to law school, students who would become our public defenders, our district attorneys, who are going to unaccredited law schools. Mm -hmm. And if you have graduate students who are pursuing higher education, a post-baccalaureate uh, degree at an unaccredited institution, you kind of, you scratch your head and then you, you know, then you think about you know, globally speaking, uh, open access institutions, I wonder if everybody understands, you yeah. know, what yeah. the I role of accreditation is. And they, they, may they may not, although they also assume certain things if you say you're accredited, right? And so that goes to your question about the reform. Um, going back to your earlier questions, um, I think that reform is, is happening right now, even though, you know, some of the reform is happening from within. So accreditors are themselves looking at their practices and figuring out, well, they, the, the uh, organization that represents regional accreditors just did a big study about outcomes and how you would measure them and how you would figure out what is a good graduation rate? What would it look like? Uh, for which kind of institution? How do we factor in the, the question of the kinds of students you're serving? 
while still not letting people off the hook for really bad results. So there is some reform happening within, right? Um, but in terms of the, the broad cacophony of new credentials, I think that you, you rightly put your finger on something that is driving reforms that could come more quickly in a couple of different areas. And here's where that, that conversation about short-term versus long-term benefit for the student I think is important and why I think there still should be guardrails around things. Um, there is a real perception on the Hill and there are some proposals out there to try to open up the gates <laughs> to federal aid for a whole lot more options. Mm -hmm. And it comes from, I think, a, you know, a place of real interest in trying to get people to the credentials quicker. Um, it also comes from a sense that these, some of these things might be of high quality and some of them probably are. But the truth is we don't actually know very much about them. And as much as you can criticize the current accreditation process for not being transparent enough or maybe not af asking enough tough questions, it has been around for a while. It does have a regular process and it, it puts institutions through a process of looking at that. So there's a lot of experiments out there right now uh, including some that we are involved in, to say how would we develop an appropriate quality assurance um, system for those non-degree credentials if, in fact, the idea is to open up the aid, right? Um, I think the thing that worries us a little bit is um, we are concerned about not creating yet again a kind of two-tier system or completely separate tracks for different kinds of students. <laughs> and even if, and that's why that, that point you made about stackable credentials, the point I made earlier about the pathways, <laughs> um, is so important to us because it is true that people might start in different places and a certificate might be the thing they need to just get to a better wage that enables them to have a life at all, right? But if that's all it is, and if there's no other way for that person to keep going, given the future of work, which clearly will demand more, then that seems like not a wise public policy choice um, and wouldn't and likely would, from an equity point of view, hurt um, students of color and low-income students much mm -hmm. more than it would hurt more privileged students who have access to more information, who you know, aspire and are able to aspire to a higher level right from the start. Mm -hmm. This is an area where I think there's, there's a lot of debate. I personally think the accreditors themselves could be more explicit, some of them are, but most of them are not, about a broad set of outcomes that pretty much every employer agrees are really, really important, no matter what job you have, and especially if you ever hope to move from one job to the next and navigate change. And there is a small set that it's, much research shows is pretty important. They could hold all their institutions accountable to produce outcomes on those things. Now, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't measure, you wouldn't insist that everybody measure it all exactly the same way or the cut scores would all be the same or something. But you could at least put on the table, these things are really important no matter whether it's a certificate or a bachelor's degree or a law degree. If you're going to be successful in the, in the world of work today, there are certain things you need to know and be able to do. And if we had that as a starting point, you then might be able to start building those guardrails around those other kinds of programs. Um, 
I think the, the, the challenge is going to be who does what. Um, is this all a federal regulatory thing or, or not? And I, I'm not really sure. Um, I think, as you mentioned, the PROSPER Act is, is out there. Um, it mostly stays away from that and, and I would say lowers the guardrails quite a bit. Um, whether it lowers the too much is probably a debate worth having. Uh, the problem, I mean, the Prosper Act, even the Republicans didn't have enough votes to even bring it to the floor at this point. Um, so I don't actually think it will be the starting point for the HEA reauthorization. I think ultimately that will happen in the Senate. Um, but certain ideas that are in the Prosper Act, and there are good ones and not so good ones from my point of view in there, will likely evolve and either make their way into a big omnibus higher ed act or could just be a, an experimental bill that gets passed that's about opening up aid in some way to new entrants. Um, so it, it's the reforms can happen at multiple levels. Um, and, and I think people don't recognize also how innovative and reform-minded a lot of institutions are. A lot of your members are trying to do all kinds of creative things to um, you know, take those alternative credentials and build them right into their own institutions or form partnerships with people who are offering other ways of, of recognizing credit. There's a ton of crea creative stuff going on out there, but actually what happens is that contributes to the chaos that you were describing. Like, I don't know how to make sense of this and you're an educated person, so how would you know a typical first generation college student make sense of it? It's, it's pretty daunting. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think one of the apprehensions that our institutions have as part of this broader discourse on certificates, for an example, and adding and embedding additional courses onto a certificate that will lead to an associate's degree is that right now about 60% of all of our students are independent students. Mm -hmm. Independent students are either, you know, they're married or they're, they're single, they have a dependent, uh, they're 24 years and over. Uh, and about half of those independent students are 30 years and up. Mm -hmm. So when you try to tell somebody on the advising and counseling side, this would be this is what you want to do. These are the courses that you need to do, but we're also going to embed some courses so that will help you further down the food chain, but also will hopefully progress you on to an associate's degree when if you so desire. Right. But it will give you some background, uh, some backup, so to right. speak, right. Uh, as the economy fluctuates. That's where students, they don't, they don't, they, they put on the, you know, whoa, Nellie, I, can't, I don't have time for this. You know, it's like, I have a, I have a, you know, I have a parent to take care of. I have a child. I have, you know, this. And I think that's where what we've been trying to do is at least give them uh, a, some educational component to as us as a starting point because yeah, one thing that one we thing do that know and this is broadly speaking for our economy people are changing occupations they're changing sectors it's a continual life cycle of work for an individual so but that also means that they should understand what is a key component of that and that's the soft skills that we talk about and Sometimes it's difficult for institutions to basically mandate to a 35-year-old, a 44-40-year-old man saying, you know, you don't have a baccalaureate degree, you don't have a bachelor's degree, and, you know, you had only a certificate in this, but we think this would be good for you. And he's like, what are all these other things that I need, you want me to take? 
I don't want to take the orientation class yeah. like David Conner did. I didn't did know I had to take it. But you know, I mean, I think you're, you're hitting on something. Something I think is really, really important. Your comment about the the world of work changing so rapidly and so quickly, and I think the thing that we may be evolving to, and we'll need a whole different structure of quality assurance and regulations to accommodate this, but. People still have in their heads this idea that you're kind of a learner for a while, and then you stop and you become a worker. And, there, and that has not been true for a really long time. But the other idea that people have to sort of think about is we're all going to be workers and learners at the same time, right? So the credentialing process has to somehow accommodate to that, which I do think means institutions have to think pretty creatively about not just offering those smaller things to get people going, but then the on-ramp back, um, which could be even embedded with employers themselves being the ones driving it, right? So that you're not telling someone, oh, here, go do that job, and then when that collapses, come back to us. And instead, people remain employed, but you're giving them opportunities to continue to learn. And, and your institutions are right at the forefront of being able to do that, probably better than almost any others. I would also say this also brings in an interesting conversation about those individuals who say college isn't for everyone. And sometimes I sometimes I wonder. Um, but this actually, you know, I, I think. But in the broadest sense, that is discouragement for individuals uh, about the idea of going to higher education. That basically means to a high school senior. Well, you know, if Senator X and Representative Y are saying, I don't need to go to college, then why do I need to go to college? And when yep. you said, um, well, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I go to, I'm a learner, then I go to work. Well, what about the individuals who just go to work yep. and then realize that their industry is kaput? And then comes to the realization, oh, now what do I do? Now what do wow, I do? what do I do? Yeah. And exactly. I think exactly. those, exactly. you know, those are the things that we think as part of the broader public discourse, what we would love for to have is say, everybody needs some type of post-secondary education. Right. And That's how we, we've, started we've started shifting from, um, because of that confusion about what college means, yeah. right? And most people have a more narrow view of it than, than is real. We've started just, just talking about learning beyond high school. And even though you're right, there's policymaker kind of easy. I usually think it's about like the other people's kids' problems, right? Not everybody needs to go to college, which generally means other people's kids don't have to go to college, but mine are. <laughs> um, so there's that part of it. And then there's also the, well, what they mean by college is a very small slice of what all the potential learning beyond high school could be, right? That's why we have this proliferation of credentials out there, because this is a complicated picture that, that we're trying to serve. It's a, it's a changing economy that we're trying to serve. Um, but I, I totally agree with you that, um, in a way, this broader quality conversation needs to help us paint a picture of the outcomes of different kinds of credentials over time so that we can actually make the case that, yeah, there are multiple starting points, you, whatever position you are in, actually the economic data is pretty clear. It's pretty damn hard to succeed economically without some learning and credentialing beyond high school. 
Um, and that, I think the, for me, the conversation about the, the, um, the minimum level that would be a defining thing for quality. And you could have a conversation about quality as a more aspirational thing. But in a regulatory sense, you're often talking about a minimum. Do you get over a certain bar, and therefore you're eligible for this, that, or the other thing? I think that conversation actually needs to start from the conversation of what is the floor, um, which is higher, I would argue, than it used to be, of knowledge, skills, and abilities that enable you, no matter what happens in the economy, to navigate it, even if that means coming back or not. Um, and I think that's an interesting conversation because it's changed. The floor has changed. My dad was a working class guy, never went to college. He did fine. Um, what he knew and was able to do worked for when he was alive and, and working. But even he back then knew it wasn't going to work for his kids. Um, and there were reasons why he, he understood that the better jobs <laughs> were going to require something more. Um, Though I think that I think about my dad a lot when I um, hear people say, you know, in in a kind of plaintive way about there is I think a, a legitimate um, embedded in that conversation about everyone going to college is a kind of disdain for or a looking down upon mm -hmm. people who work with their hands or and that was my dad and I, I think that. Um, that we have to respect that and understand that as we're trying to talk about how much the world has changed. Um, I also think that people have this vision of what what a blue collar job is, again, air quotes, and a white collar job. Like Those categories also are not really real anymore. Not about the ROI, but the education as a value of our society. And for the folks that are being told you don't need to go to college, it's not for everyone. There is a backlash from those folks about the elites. Elite. Absolutely. And then, like you said, the elites who look down upon those who are doing the work with their hands. But when you were talking about outcome measures and uh -huh. that, um, that goes back to what our leadership is held accountable for now. Yes. And you know, and back to the boards and, and them holding their, you know, presidents accountable for graduation rates and timely graduation. How do we address that? I mean, how should that be addressed in a quality environment in, you know, trying to make sure that students are following a path that, you know, may or may not lead to what somebody, some entity has decided is the measure of success? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things that boards um, can, two, two ways to think about this. Obviously, there's going to be a regulatory thing. You're going to have to do certain things, and they should be paying attention, make sure their institutions are doing the things they need to do to, to have access to the aid, et cetera. Um, but I think there's also a real value in a, the boards leading a kind of higher-level conversation and an ongoing conversation about who are our students, how is the economy changing? How are our programs serving students well? And using whatever data they can gather, and probably encouraging institutions to gather more data. Um, you know, you can pick apart any one piece of data and say, well, but it doesn't tell you this, and it doesn't tell you that. And of course, no one piece of data is going to give you the whole picture. 
the answer to that is more data, not let's pretend we don't need it, right? It's, it's let's really look at where our students are, where are the jobs, what's happening with that. So it's, it's I, I do think that there's a, when you go down the rabbit hole of the regulatory conversation, you end up in a place that discourages a kind of ongoing quality conversation um, because it's periodic, it's, it is kind of by its nature, it's gonna pick a number, it's gonna pick you know, 10 numbers, whatever. Um, but in, in fact, as a board, they can be leading a conversation both at their institution, but more importantly in the community mm -hmm. about the value <laughs> of an educated populace, right? Yeah. Which is about work for sure, but it's actually about the health of the communities right. in and which your institutions Your point about live. looking down the road, the economic development of these communities, many of which are rural communities. You had mentioned you about, you know, that the population growth has been dipping. Yes, and we're at the 30, 30 year low in birth rates birth. in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, so what impact is that going to have? I mean, are colleges going to have to merge? Are we going to have to really be thinking about how, how do our boards project out 10, 15, because it's only 15 years out at that point, really, you know, yeah, about I, who's I coming. Think there's a myriad of things that our institutions have to be thinking about. Number one, they have to be thinking about their mission of their institution. And the mission of the institution then starts to have a broader conversation about things like how sustainability of your institution. Yeah. And sustainability to me means are you what what is your enrollment looking like? Who are your students that you're that are attending your institutions and how do you diversify your enrollment? So what you have seen, for example, CCRC just has a new data element on on early college programs at our institutions. Mm -hmm. I think they've like quadrupled in the, in the last five years or so. Um, I just saw a graph, so I'm hoping, <laughs> hopefully when we retape this, uh, we'll, I'll provide a better uh, the statistic. But it really shows you like the significant growth model for early college. Um, but it's also, it does pose a broader systemic issue for our, our, our rural institutions in that the United States has, be, has created these large suburban centers I wouldn't call them you know suburban urban centers yeah. 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 and you know it is a large number of our graduates are not staying in the community yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. and that means then tax the tax system is kind of on its head that means uh, less people uh, the graying of a community that means schools are having difficulty staying open that means hospitals are having a difficulty staying open library services just general societal infrastructures and that means you know ultimately that's those centers are going to gray out and then just going to collapse and that is something that does concern a large number of our institutions and our mm -hmm. boards, mm -hmm. our presidents on figuring out how to create the sustainability within an institution. And I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm, one of the things that I'm hopeful for is like with technology, and this is where technology, they have the worst technology too, but especially for brown band purposes, right, um, right. is that we can come to a situation where technology helps these rural institutions kind of 
find their place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the broader, uh, you know, urban, uh, I guess, economic landscape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the one thing that I'm kind of holding out for because it is a problem. This has been part one of a two-part episode. Remember to subscribe for part two next week when Deborah, Jihang, Colleen, and David continue their discussion of accreditation and the future of employment. Thanks for listening.